If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to look with me in the book of Psalms this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 16 this morning, so it should be right in the middle of your Bible. You can find the Psalms and then go back to chapter 16. We're going to look at that uh, today, and I'll explain that in, in just a moment. First of all, uh, wanted to give you all an update. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, surprisingly, I received the last, the final results of all my surveillance, and everything came back clear and good. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very thankful for that. And so, uh, I wanted to give you that update. Thank you for your ongoing prayers. Um, and isn't it just fun to share that? You know, I mean, I feel joy. I know you do. It's, it's just fun to celebrate that together. So thank you for your interest. Thank you for our relationship. Thank you that I can share with you hard things and you can absorb them and endure them in some way. And thank you for being able to share you good things with you good things and we can celebrate together. It's, it really means a lot to me to be able to share that with you and to see you celebrate. So thank you. Um, so now I have 120 more days. And then it starts all over again. So here we go. But until then, and after then, and even now, what's most important is what God says and who he is, right? So let's look at the word of God together. You know that we're rummaging through the Bible this year, thinking about the whole story of Scripture, and we have been uh, pretty thick into the minor prophets. And we've been spending a lot of time in the minor prophets. And I don't want to get so bogged down in the minor prophets that we miss this four-part story. Now, I've been doing the best I can, but I don't want to get so bogged down in the minor prophets because there's so many of them and it takes so long that we lose sight of what we're doing. So we're going to take a two-week pause from the minor prophets and we're going to look at two psalms together. So this week we're going to look at Psalm 16 and next week we're going to look at Psalm 67 because the Psalms help us live into the four-part story. The Psalms help us live into the four-part story. That's what they're showing. And so when we look at Psalm 16 and really all the Psalms, I, I need you to, to be aware that the Psalms are not, um, they're not so much doctrinal treatises as they are experientially living out the gospel. So when we look at Psalm 16 today, it's going to take us some time, but we're, we're going to try to experientially understand Psalm 16 rather than thinking about Psalm 16 in the abstract. Because all the Psalms are, are they are all experiential. So that means that when we look at Psalm 16, we're going to have these two stops along our journey as we go through Psalm 16. Stop number one is going to be thinking about being disoriented. And the second stop is reorientation. You got it? So that's where we're going this morning in Psalm 16. Disoriented and reoriented. That's what we're going to look at as we work our way through Psalm 16. And in saying those two ideas, being disoriented and reoriented, I want you in your mind, if you're able, to associate disoriented with the first two parts of the story. What are the first two parts of God's story again? Creation and rebellion. If you think about it, understanding creation and living in rebellion, understanding it is very disorienting, isn't it? This is how God made the world. 
This is how God made me, and this is what I experience. Everything's broken. That's really disorienting. So I want you to have that in your mind. Next, we're going to look at reorientation. And you might guess that that corresponds to the second two parts of the story, which are redemption and restoration. So that if you have in your mind that we are going to try to experience Psalm 16 as we understand it, not in the abstract, but in a living way, we're going to try to live into this four-part story by thinking about disorientation and reorientation. You follow me? All right, ready to go home? Can we just stop there? Well, let's look at Psalm 16. I'll read this to you. Listen to this. This is the word of the living God. Moth is going to destroy stuff. Rust destroy things. Grass comes and goes and fades away. But this word of God, it lasts forever. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms are beautiful, aren't they? It's all downhill from here. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for your word. Thank you for, Holy Spirit, thank you for carrying authors along like David. That as they experienced life, you were working in their hearts and in their minds so that they might express things like this in Psalm 16 that are true, that remind us of what is most true. Have your way with us, Lord. Help us to experience afresh the truth of the four-part story, that we might live into it, that you've created, we have rebelled. Our only hope is in what you have done, Jesus, and that one day all things will be made new. All will be made right. Help us to live into the story that we've been talking about and learning about together. Again, we pray all of this for your glory. We pray it for our good. We pray it with confidence. We pray it with hope. We pray it even with expectation because we're praying in the name of our God, our Savior, our friend, 
Jesus. Amen. Before we get into thinking about disorientation and reorientation, before we get to explore those two things, we need to take our time and walk through the doorway into this psalm. The doorway into this psalm is highlighted for us with the first word, preserve. Preserve me, O God. We need to take our time and walk through this doorway because there is a fundamental assumption as we approach Psalm 16. There is a presupposition, an assumption, even before we get into all the words in this passage. And the fundamental assumption is this, and I'm going to say it in a bunch of different ways because I want it to make sense to you, and I'm going to try as best I can to get it down into you. The fundamental assumption is this, we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. If you want that another way, when you wake up in the morning, does it ever occur to you that one, one does it ever occur to you that, that maybe the most important thing about life today is that I need salvation? I'm not talking about some trivial fire insurance thing because I don't want to go to hell. I'm talking about salvation. I'm talking about every single thing in my life needs to be redeemed. The good things, the bad things, the things that I'm unsure about, I need salvation. Because it's really easy to think, I don't need anybody to preserve, um, take care of me. I need to take care of myself today. Get it? The fundamental assumption of the psalm is that we need redemption. We need salvation. And the reason why that's so powerful is because we're all born with the assumption, we're all born with the proclivity, the, we're all born with the tendency, we're, we're all born bent toward this huge and deep sense of entitlement. All of us are born with a sense of entitlement. We all come out thinking, my life should be easy. The older I get, the more experienced I get, my life should increasingly be uh, equally and increasingly become more comfortable. That I deserve a good life. I deserve an easy life. I deserve a comfortable life. We all come out with that assumption. We're all bent toward that in very, very deep ways. That things should just get better and better for me. And one thing that knocks us off the entitlement wagon is this. Trials, suffering, challenges, loss. Whenever we experience those things, trials, challenges, loss, suffering, and we process those things, that's what knocks us off the entitlement wagon. And if you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I kind of understand, but I don't think I have that big of a problem with entitlement. Well, let me float this out to you as a diagnostic. If you have faced suffering and challenges in your life and trials and loss, 
If you have faced those and you have always been able to either overcome them, outlast them, or just stuff them down deeper inside of you, then let me tell you, this psalm is going to seem very beneath you. You're going to feel like you don't need this psalm at all. If every trial that you have come across, you have been able to cover it up, this psalm's not going to seem that relevant for your life. If every trial and challenge that you have faced at work, at home, and throughout your life, your career, if every challenge and every trial you face, you have always been able to overcome it in and of yourself, and it hasn't stopped you, it's just ramped up your ability to cover it up, stuff it down, or just move on. This psalm is probably, you're probably going to be bored today. It won't resonate with you. But if you have faced trials, suffering, loss, challenges, and you have processed those things, you have processed your challenges and processed your trials and processed your losses, if you have processed them and realized that you are broken, that you live in a very broken world, and if you have realized that you're not just broken and the world isn't just broken, but those trials and that suffering and those challenges and that loss have led to you being broken open, because there's a difference between being broken and being broken open. And if you have been broken open as you have processed those things, this psalm will resonate with you more deeply than I can even express. Here's, here's, here's the connection. The degree to which we have processed our trials, our losses, our challenges, our suffering, the degree to which we have processed all of that and been broken open is the degree to which we are minimizing our entitlement and connecting and resonating with God's word in Psalm 16. Say it again. The degree to which we have processed our trials, our losses, our suffering, our challenges, and, those, and in processing, those things have broken us open is the degree to which Our entitlement mentality is minimized and being minimized. And that is the degree to which we will resonate with Psalm 16. And friends, that's what brings us to thinking about being disoriented. Did you notice that this psalm was written by David? David writes this psalm. And we really don't know the exact historical reference of when this psalm was written and I think that's by design. I think God doesn't want us to know a lot of the specific historical references of why these things were written because he wants to just say, come on in. Just in case we might think, well, I haven't had exactly the same thing as him, and so I'm not sure. This is nope. We don't know exactly what it is, so it invites us in, <laughs> no matter what we're going through. And even though we don't know the exact time and reason why David wrote this psalm, it is perfectly responsible for us to remember that David had 
a not-so-great relationship with the king, whose name was Saul. Do you remember this? And in David's relationship with Saul, two things were simultaneously going on. David was having to run for his life. You remember King Saul? If you never heard of King Saul, he was this king uh, that, that the people wanted to, um, to rule over them. And uh, Saul started out great, um, but, you know, didn't end so well. But um, this was Saul's MO. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And he saw David as an enemy. So he wanted to keep David close than his friends, which meant there were times in which David was at King Saul's house and uh, he saw a spear coming at him because Saul decided he was going to take David out. So David lived a chunk of a season of his life on the run, not knowing where he was going to stay, where he was going to go, when he needed to leave, where he needed to hide. He had to figure out who to trust. He had to figure out how to get food. He had to figure out what he was going to do. And in conjunction with that, David also had this profound sense that he needed to honor and respect the king. Do you know what we call those two things working together in somebody's life? Disorientation. How in the world am I supposed to live when this person who's the king is trying to kill me and he's after me? He knows where I live. I got to live on the run. I got to figure out where I'm going to eat. I got to figure out what I'm going to do and who I'm going to trust. And at the same time, I need to honor this man and I need to respect him whenever and wherever I can. That is very disorienting. Because as David was living out those two things simultaneously, he was experiencing loss he was experiencing suffering. He was experiencing challenges. He was experiencing trials. And that was very disorienting. And if you want to add other layers to this, when David was young, God told him that he was going to be king. So here he is with this grand expectation that he's going to be king, and yet this is his reality that the king is after him? Very disorienting, isn't it? And if that seems too abstract, let's pull that into our lives. Let's pull all that stuff with David and try to bring it into our lives. You do realize that adulting reveals what's in your heart, right? Those of you that maybe middle school, high school age, that you're starting to get to the point where you're making a few more decisions about your life and what you want to do and what you like about your parents and what you don't, you realize that adulting and the practice of becoming an adult and having to do adult things, which increases in your life, um, that reveals what's in your heart. You do realize that as you sit here this morning, your career, your jobs reveal what is in your heart. You've been working somewhere for five years, 10 years, 30 years, 40 years, more. That has all revealed what was in your heart. If you're single this morning, that does reveal what's going on in your heart. If you're married this morning, that ha your marriage has revealed what's going on in your heart. If you're a parent, if you're not, that reveals what's going on in your heart. Our whole lives make plain what's going on in our hearts. 
And let's add something on top of that. Because we live in a culture and we are part of the culture and contribute to this. We are in the arena, and you all in particular are in the arena in which half-truths are expected. You, you work in the arena all the time in which misrepresenting things is expected. You work in the arena in which uh, bold-faced lies are expected. At minimum, you gotta be on the outlook. You, you gotta be watching for that. And you add to that the complexity of work-based dynamics. You add to that the whole idea of competition and what that means in your field, in your specific and unique way. All of that creates a whole lot of, guess what? Disorientation. Because you're figuring out how in the world am I supposed to operate in this? You might not have anybody who's after you to kill you, but my hunch is that you've had experiences in which someone wasn't afraid to get rid of you to, to advance their career. My hunch is that you have lived in experience in which you weren't afraid that someone was coming after you to kill you, but someone lying to your face has happened a lot. Or someone expecting you to present half-truths or to misrepresent things in your job for the good of the company. Meaning, tell other people that we're about this when actually the truth is you're actually about that. You live in this arena in which it is incredibly disorienting. And those experiences that you have, all of those experiences, have meant that there are times in which you have felt like you were under tremendous trials. You were enduring tremendous trials. It meant that you were suffering in some capacity. It meant that you have experienced loss. Come on, you have. You've experienced these things. It's been really hard. It's really difficult to live in a world that is profoundly broken in which we are profoundly broken, and in which broken people have to work together and things are just messed up. It is really disorienting, isn't it? And if you know that to be true, and you've experienced that, beloved, you're right, you're right on the cusp of getting to the contents of Psalm 16. You're living on the outskirts of it, in a way, because the whole psalm is meant to reorient us. The whole psalm is meant to reorient our lives. Matter of fact, Psalm 16 reorients us toward these three things. Life, joy, and pleasure. You want to know what God's up to through the good news of Jesus Christ? It is 
giving us space to acknowledge how disoriented we feel and how disorienting life in a broken world is and how hard it is to live in a broken world when we are recognizing our own brokenness and our own rebellion. And God wants us to acknowledge that to be true so that we can understand how he reorients everything about us. He reorients us toward life and joy and pleasure. Verse 11 is the summary of the entire psalm. Verse 11 is the summary of verses 1 through 10. Verse 11 gives us the categories to think about everything else that was stated in the first 10 verses. Do you hear verse 11? It's a really good option for a tattoo if you're into that. Because to put that on your body and to think about the reality like on a regular basis that God will show me the path of life that in his presence, whether I'm eating or drinking, there is fullness of joy and that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's not what I think about when I wake up in the morning. And that is exactly what God is determined to do, is to reorient us toward life as opposed to death. Life as opposed to uh, just existing in this world. He wants us to know life and what it means to truly live and he wants us to live in such a way that we can experience joy And he created us to live in a way that we can experience joy so that we can live lives of full pleasure. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Especially if you come from a background in which God's kind of this big figure who's like this uh, cosmic cop who's always waiting to catch you. It's really good to live in light of what God says and to have what he says get down deep into us because oftentimes God's much better than we think he is and much better than what we've heard. You see, God wants to reorient us and he wants us to acknowledge how disoriented things are because it's so much easier for us to live in denial You find it easy to live in denial? I mean, who really wants to name or describe the suffering that they're going through or the trial they're going through or whatever it may be? Who wants to do that? It's just easier to live as if it doesn't exist. Let's not talk about it. Let's not act like it. It reminds me of a scene from a movie way back uh, in the late 1900s. (laughs) Yeah. You ever thought about that? This movie's from the late 1900s. And it was a movie about World War II. And it was a movie about troops that stormed the beach at Normandy, particularly at Omaha. And I remember the scene in which there was a soldier who was running across the beach as the gun was fired, the guns were firing and bombs were going off and people were falling everywhere. And this soldier runs across the beach and all of a sudden uh, bullets from a machine gun hit his arm and take his arm off. 
and he keeps running and then he realizes his arm is off and he goes back and he grabs his arm and he puts it up here and, he, and then he starts running again his arm falls off and he comes back and he grabs his arm and just as if he thinks it can snap back on, he can keep going, right? In other words, it's easier to live in denial and just think, oh, my arm has been cut off. Well, I can just snap it back on and keep going. It's a lot easier, to, it's a lot harder to slow down and think, oh my goodness, my arm has just been severed and it won't snap back on and yet I have to keep going or else I'm gonna die. It's a lot easier to try to live in denial but you can't keep running when your arm's cut off thinking you can just plug it in play and go. And God is determined to reorient us toward life and joy and pleasure. Look at this with me quickly. Look at what it means for God to reorient us toward life. Look at verse one, two, and three. God says he'll preserve us. God says that he is our refuge. Verse two, we have goodness from God. Oh Lord, I have nothing good apart from you. All my goodness is in you. Verse three, that he gives us community. Beloved, do you see the gospel there? Do you realize what Jesus has done? Do you realize that through the cross that Jesus is preserving us? That Jesus is our refuge? Beloved, because of the cross and for this, most specifically the resurrection, beloved, your refuge is alive. Your shelter is alive. And his name is Jesus and you get to hide in him. Do you realize that you have the goodness of Jesus credited to you? That you can't get your goodness from your job or what you have endured or what you have suffered or the trials that you have faced and overcome or been through. Your goodness can't come from your achievements through those things and your goodness can't be taken away when you have failed spectacularly in, suffer, in suffering or through trials or whatever it is because your goodness is given to you in what Jesus has accomplished which means that your trials and your suffering and the losses that you experience in your life they don't take a single thing away from you and that's really hard to live into, but it's true in Jesus. God is reorienting our lives toward life, a life in which I'm preserved, a life in which I have shelter, a life in which I have a goodness that's given, a life in which I have community. Look at verse three. So in other words, those of you that are tired of being lonely in the darkness of loneliness, in Jesus you're brought into community with his people. And it's supposed to be a community of love and care. Joy? Look at verse four and verse seven and eight. You see, joy works two ways, in two directions. When God reorients our lives toward joy, it means that because of Jesus, we see the emptiness of idols. And it's not just that we know in our minds that anything other than God defining or giving me my worth, my career giving my worth, my accomplishments giving my worth, anything other than God is empty. 
Because you can put all you are into your career and it will require that you sacrifice something else, your family or something else, and then they just move on. But beloved, because of God's grace to recognize the idols in our lives, to fight against them, to realize that they're empty, that to give ourselves to idols just means that there's a multiplication of sorrows. The other side of that is that God is our counselor. He's with us. That's what verse seven and eight is telling you. He's with me, even to the point in which I will not be shaken. You see what Jesus has done for you through the cross? is that the, what he has accomplished through the cross and his resurrection means that our empty lives chasing false idols are paid for. And by his grace, they're weakening in our lives. They're dying because he died. And it means that there is a joy that God brings into our lives that seeks us even through pain. The joy of God is so profound that even we experience the pain of suffering and loss and trials and challenges that there is a joy there that even emerges through pain. I can tell you that from my own experience these last two years. There is a joy that I have that I would not know had I not been through what I have been through. And it's a joy that's deeper than my circumstances. It's deeper than Dave getting his own way. I've had plans for two years to take a trip, and I couldn't do it. And now, by God's grace, I think I'm going to be able to. I'm looking more forward to going now than I did two years ago. But I really wanted to go two years ago. But there's a joy that seeks me through pain. God's counsel provides that for us. He doesn't get rid of the pain. He doesn't say you're going to have to live a pain-free life. But his joy seeks us through pain. And pleasure? Look at verse 5 and 6. 9 and 10. There's a pleasure that we have through what Jesus has done. And that pleasure is bound up in our inheritance. It's that one day, all things will be made new. It's that one day, Jesus will return. This is why we can read in verse 9 and 10 about the reality that he won't allow us, he won't abandon us, and he won't let us ultimately, finally, and forever see corruption. Because, beloved, through what Jesus has done, our ultimate destiny is not corruption, it is eternity. It is not corruption. It is healing and complete healing. Beloved, do you see what God is doing through the gospel? He is reorienting our lives. Can you step back away from Psalm 16 and see it? Can you see that his reorientation is toward life and joy and pleasure, and that encompasses from being preserved 
all the way to resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection and us experiencing healing and being healed and everything in between with God's counsel and his presence and his people and his ultimate promise that he'll be with us and never abandon us. You see, that's exactly what this meal communicates. And that's what brings us to the table.